Welcome to the Bad Lab Live. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Parag Khanna. Parag is a globally renowned scholar. Uh, he studies not just foreign policy and international relations, but he studies geopolitics, geostrategy. He understands and writes about urbanization. He uh, deals with conflict and war. He talks about climate change. He's truly a polyglot for the 21st century. Uh, Parag has traveled the world many, many times over. He's a regular uh, participant of the World Economic Forum's uh, annual meeting at Davos. Uh, he's a prodigy. He's been doing this for a long time. And Parag has written six books. His most recent, in fact, his upcoming book uh, is uh, The Future is Asian uh, by Parag Khanna. And uh, this book will be released uh, worldwide in February 2019. Uh, so I think it's a great privilege for Tabad Lab Live to be hosting Parag Khanna um, and to have an opportunity to talk about this book and the ideas in this book with him. Welcome to Tabad Lab Live, Parag. It's an honor to be with you, Mushal. You keep churning out these books, um, and it's hard for me to keep up. They don't write themselves, uh, my friend. Well, you know, this is you've been telling me this <laughs> yeah. for over a decade. Um, Clearly, I still believe they do write themselves. <laughs> um, I, I love the idea of the futurization, but I wonder, the first thing I thought when I saw the title, because I haven't read it yet, but the first thing when I, when I saw the title was, Parag is like 15 years behind. Because to me, we're already in the Asian century. And in many ways, for me, what I'm hoping for is the South Asian century. We have this long-standing sort of conversation about why sort of from essentially Kabul to Chittagong, right. um, you know, why, why this part of the world isn't right. running the world. Um, and not in a negative way, but like, you know, in many ways it already is. I think maybe, you know, as a Pakistani, maybe I feel like maybe we're getting a little bit left out. Uh, but I don't think India is anywhere near where it could be. Certainly Bangladesh has a lot of, you know, room to grow, Sri Lanka, and of course Afghanistan and the Great War. But that's more of a South Asian look. Right. And you're talking about the future is Asian. So why don't you just give us a big picture yeah, overview of what you're, what you're yeah. saying in this book? And yeah, The truth is we've had this expression, the Asian century, for almost a century, actually. But of course, that has been massively conflated and dislocated and steered in the direction of China. So nowadays, when you hear the phrase Asian century, people think only China. The title of this book is not The Future is Chinese. The title of this book is The Future is Asian. And Asia is much bigger. So as a geographer, a political geographer in my heart of hearts, I wanted to remind everyone that Asia stretches from the Arabian Peninsula to Japan and from Russia to Australia. Right? We're talking about a mega region of 5 billion people. Only 1.5 billion of those people are Chinese. In all of the conversations today about global order, which speaks exactly to your point about what about us, right? What about Kabul to Chittagong? What about the trunk, Grand Trunk Road countries, right? We're neglected entirely, and that's a big mistake. Because if you look to the future, you see that, in a way, and one of the arguments of this book, is that we may be at peak China. China is now massively recycling all of those assets, all of that savings that had accrued over the past 40 years, and helping to build the rest of Asia. And the rest of Asia is now younger, growing faster, more dynamic, foreign, getting more foreign investment than China is, and yet that conversation that dominates our headlines is China, 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 China. You've seen that Trump clip where he just says China all the time. That's not the future. Even China's future is more Asian than China realizes it is, right? 
And that's the point of this book. Asia is much bigger than China. The Asian story is not going to depend only on the fate of the trade war between the US and China, or even China's own domestic evolution. There is something much bigger going on. I have to remind everyone of that. But your fundamental point stands, it's actually the present that is Asian, but that's not a very catchy title. So we went with the future is Asian. Yeah. How much of an opportunity, Prague, do you have to go through sort of the, I, I find fascinating and, and fascinatingly undersold the story of the Philippines over the last 40 years, right? The dynamic of this massive diaspora that's known for this one sort of set of really amazing skills that's driven an entire economy for four decades, maybe more. Uh, Vietnam, which I think is foundationally fascinating Absolutely. because of the yeah. Vietnam War right. and the tilt in Vietnam and the way that it's yeah. it's evolved over the years. Absolutely. Japan. How much? Yeah. How many of the countries do you deal with separately? Or do you try to keep it in the main and say, well, there's all these roads and you don't distinguish between Bangkok and Ho Chi Minh oh, very and, much so. and, and Manila? Again, you know, we have 20 years of books about Asia that are actually only about China. What I wanted to do was to write the first book about Asia that's actually about all of Asia. So I give as much space to ASEAN and to South Asia and Central Asia as I do to China itself. Right? I'm not going to say anything that particularly new about China, but I'm going to introduce people to the entire ASEAN space, the 10 countries, 700 plus million people, a GDP larger than India, receiving more foreign investment than China, Again, with a younger median age. That's today already. So waking people up to Southeast Asia as a block, as an economic region that is one of the four largest in the entire world already, right? that is up there in importance with India, that is growing faster than China, is very central. And again, of course, India and South Asia as well. And the way that Belt and Road, again, a Chinese initiative, the way in which it actually elevates those regions to compete with China, is actually one of the central messages. And you mentioned Japan. One of the critical uh, aspects of the analysis is to point out that whereas most people look at economic growth and competition as a rivalry between these discrete blocks, that is not the way the Asian story has unfolded. And it takes just two seconds to explain. Japan led Asia's modern growth miracle in the post-war decades. The Asian tigers, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong back. Kong, we're inspired by it and piggybacked on it. And then those Asian tigers plus Japan were, of course, the leading investors in China. Sure. China would not be China were it not for Japan and the tigers. And now you have Japan plus the tigers plus China all leading that next wave of outward investment into South and Southeast Asia. Asia Bangladesh. ASEAN, Nepal, India, sure. Pakistan, Central yeah. Asia, the former Soviet republics. Why are all those countries getting all that investment? Why are they growing? It's because of the previous waves of Asian growth supporting them. There is a mutually reinforcing story, right, that really begins in the 1940s and 1950s and is now carrying forward today. History does not end with China, right? History does not begin with China. And that's one thing that really has to be pointed out. So the next great Asian growth wave of South and Southeast Asia, two and a half billion people from where we're sitting, Pakistan through India, Bangladesh, through ASEAN, all the way to the Philippines, is the next great Asian wave of growth. I'm, I'm always, obviously, I think for you, uh, I'm always drawn to talk about, you know, the sort of center of gravity in my world, which is very much Pakistan and India and, and Afghanistan. 
But I, I reckon that we're not actually all that special. I, I think Indians and Pakistanis and that rivalry is, is bigger in India and Pakistan than it is elsewhere. So, for example, the China-Japan sort of relationship is pretty complicated and mm-hmm. has some very, very strong feelings. And, of course, North and South Korea is very, very complicated. Uh, I, I don't think there are parallels, but those are you know big conflicts. Vietnam and essentially the whole world. I mean, it's right. really, really complex. Uh, the Malay, even within countries, the Malays and the Chinese, or the Malays and the Indians yeah. within Malaysia. There's all these conflicts and there's ethnic strife and all of the things that we kind of look at South Asia and we say, maybe this is just unique to us. Maybe we're just like this. Right. But I wonder if you want to say anything about the fact that these kinds of conflicts, real deep hatreds based on a thousand years of, of, of anger and, 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 you know, well-founded in many cases, right. uh, does exist, but... But these countries and these regions and, and essentially Asia or future Asia has already overcome these. And right. so it's inevitable that it'll happen here as well. Yeah. Or, or is that... I, I deal with this in two ways. There are post-colonial countries and pairs of countries and their rivalries and the ways in which over subsequent generations, like Singapore, Malaysia, India, Pakistan, you might say, certainly East African countries... By the third or fourth generation, really entering the fourth generation almost since decolonization began, you start to see not only an acceptance of the other, but even a willingness to open up to the other, build cross-border infrastructure, have greater trade relations, all of these kinds of things. So there's a, there's a gradual acceptance of reality, of the new political cartography, the borders, and so forth. Burying the hatchet, I call it. That's starting to happen, again, in, in some ways faster than others. ASEAN, Southeast Asia, has gone way further than other post-colonial regions in achieving this and saying, live and let live, right? We had our rivalries, our grandparents fought each other, but now we're going to build one integrated economic region. So, but that didn't have... So, so, but, so, so that distinction is really important, I think, you know, again, from, from, the, from the vantage point that, that I'm looking at all this from. What is it that's unique about these sort of ASEAN countries and their ability to overcome that hasn't been tried elsewhere? Because I don't think it's this saccharine sort of, you know uber sweet sort of we're all one and you know one no, love because no, it's, it's not, because i think yeah. people and and then it's i don't think it's cultural either because i think there's some i'm, I'm uncomfortable with that kind of analysis anyway because i think people are people regardless of how they look or smell or you know what color of skin there is or which way they pray um or don't what what are the kind of economic or strategic or geopolitical factors that made it possible in asean and that are keeping South Asia? Yeah, that's an extremely important question. Actually, it's because they are so different. Right? As you know, in, in history and, and across civilizations and cultures, people tend to fight more the more similar they are. So that helps to explain India and Pakistan a lot. It certainly explains all of European history as well. In Southeast Asia, you have such an incredible diversity of civilizations, of cultures, of linguistic again, heterogeneity, they really can't conquer each other or absorb each other, right? That they, again, have to live and let live. Secondly, they're very small countries, right? They're smaller economies. They realize that a big power like China can very easily divide and conquer them if they don't come together in some meaningful ways. No individual ASEAN economy barely tops a trillion dollars in size. Individually, they cannot compete with China. Collectively, however, as I just said, they're literally drawing more FDI than China is. What's attracting that? It's because they've said, let's integrate our supply chains, right? Let's get our infrastructural networks 
harmonized and linked together. Where did they start on, on the infrastructure? Did they start with roads or with other stuff? It starts mostly with roads. It starts with, and again, cross-border companies. It's, it's when a gas company, a telecom, a bank, you know, starts to move across borders. An airline, AirAsia, you know, I tell Tony Fernandez, the CEO of AirAsia, you know, you're the best ambassador that ASEAN ever had. ASEAN doesn't have, have an ambassador, doesn't have a spokesman for the world. It's basically AirAsia, right? But so every border, every regulatory border that comes I thought it down, would be Jimmy Choo, but well, <laughs> that's in the crazy rich Asians uh, version of the story, you know. Um, so it's it's step by step. You don't. The mo- here's the most important lesson: you don't count on the diplomats to do it. It's the business people, the students, the travelers, the entrepreneurs, the investors, right? They go down because if you look at the inequality in Asia, and if Asia were a country, its inequality would be about literally 25 times worse than any other region or part of the world, even Africa, because Africa doesn't have spectacular wealth, spectacular wealth the way that Asia does to that degree. And so it's looking at that inequality across borders and saying, you know what, this is an opportunity, right? This is, poverty is an opportunity. Let's invest in it. Let's develop these societies. They're going to be our markets. We're going to be selling our goods across those borders. That's what's happening. That's what's driven ASEAN integration, amongst other factors, obviously, going back the last 40, 50 years. It hasn't happened here because our geopolitical circumstances are still very walled off, you know, and we have these legacy border disputes that you don't have in ASEAN as rigidly as we do here. Uh, I think we have to get over them, but you don't get over them just by talking about it. You start to build the bridges across it and around it, and then that becomes the final domino to fall. So I've tried to challenge my own notion about trade as being kind of a cure-all. Um, and the easy statistics are available just from the China-India relationship where there are border disputes and there's actual live fire right. uh, sometimes, as there was a couple of years ago. But they've managed to grow the trade. And I think actually something quite fascinating is happening between Beijing and New Delhi. And I don't think anybody's actually paying attention. But, but I think President Xi and Prime Minister Modi are both kind of focused on keeping it out of the headlines and building it up. Um, and I think the foundation for that has come from, from trade. Um, and investment, yeah. Absolutely. Sure. I mean, the, the fact is that Asian powers, and you mentioned China and Japan earlier, where, of course, there's you know, sort of deep uh, animosities and historical rivalry. Um, but they have, alongside, again, every other major pair of powers in Asia, managed to separate the geopolitics from the geoeconomics. And that's what, what you're really getting at. And that's what China and India have also started to do. You know, here we are in Pakistan. China invests twice as much in India as it does in Pakistan, right? It trades more than 10 times more with India than it does with Pakistan, right? So whenever you, you're pointing out rightly that for each of us, wherever we are, we think we're the center of the world um, because China is lavishing attention on us, for example, it's minuscule compared to what Chinese corporates are doing with India, sure. right? They're, they're far greater rival, obviously, not an ally Absolutely. the way Pakistan is. They've also enjoyed, and this I think goes for all of the places that, you, that, that we've talked about so far, the ASEAN countries, certainly even India. You've had this phenomenal rise of the uber-rich, right? And one of the things that I've said to very, very poor reviews here in Pakistan is that the overemphasis on corruption in the public discourse is a distraction. It is not, uh, to me, and I'm, I mean, I'm saying it on, on, on record because <laughs> I really believe it. It's not that corruption is good, but of all the examples of the countries out there that are actually growing in a way that can really lift 
100 million people into a new class structure, into new consumption patterns. A lot of that happens on the back of work that is done by individuals and groups that are thoroughly corrupt. I'm with you. Yeah. What? I, Talk I've, a little bit. Yeah. Do, you, do you deal with corruption? I've dealt with that at significant length in Connectography, the prequel to this sure. book, where I actually looked at about 25 emerging markets, developing countries, fast-growing economies, and I looked at the rate of foreign investment correlated to uh, their growth rates and their ranking in the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index. And what I found is that actually money investment chases growth. It cares very little for corruption. And in development economics, there is a clear distinction between sort of good corruption and bad corruption. Good corruption is the sort of you know, the necessary byproduct or handmaiden of getting things done. Of, of and, a lot of transactions. And getting things done helps create growth. And eventually you will have various other forces because it takes a lot more to reduce corruption than simply growth. Institutional reforms and social kind of tra- you know, transparency and progress and all of these kinds of things. It's not a, there's not a one-stop solution to it. But basically, the bottom line is you can grow despite corruption. In fact, again, I looked at all of these countries uh, in good times and bad, military regimes or democratic regimes, the money is going to come in if the economy is growing. It does not care. It is almost blind to corruption. So very fundamentally, empirically, you are totally correct. And what we need to do is to focus on the growth and then on the regulatory reforms that increase competition, and that will eventually diminish the corruption. But you don't, just like poverty or inequality and corruption, you don't solve these things by talking about them. You have to do something. Sure. You have to invest, you have to reform, you have to open, and you grow. But, so I think free markets, and particularly the uber-rich, so th- I'm not talking about kind of the parasitical elite that, that frankly, I think Pakistan, uh, and, and I think to a great extent a country like Bangladesh, um, and I think to a lesser extent Sri Lanka. I, I think one of the reasons why these countries uh, you know, are held back is because they don't actually have an uber-elite. Like, there's no Mukesh Ambani in, in these countries. There are people who are the richest in these countries who may think they're Ambani. But what Ambani and, and you know, the sort of the South Korean groups, they represented a totally different level. And, of course, rent-seeking and alleged corruption is a part and parcel of that spectacular growth. But I think one of the things that it does is when you have those kinds of groups, they can drive almost the expansion, not just of the economy per se, but particularly urban economies. And I wonder, you know, when I think of Noida and and Gurgaon, I really think that these places were really, they were products of New Delhi, of of the uber-rich in India outgrowing New Delhi. I mean, which is in some ways kind of ahistoric, right? Because you think, well, New Delhi is this great historical city. And in a sense, India is super-rich, said, you know what, thanks, but no thanks, we're actually going to set up these new towns. I mean, same in sort of Navi Mumbai. You know, there's a lot of money that is actually yeah. private capital that's driving this. I know that's... The story begins in uh, Jamshedpur, right? Tata sure, City. Exactly, right? That's right. So what Where Priyanka Chopra is from. Right. <laughs> what you're really getting at is this fact that there's a distinction between just wealth for the sake of it and the uber-rich. That's a diversion of our attention. It's about the industrial class over the the centuries, and particularly the last 70, 80 years, is an industrial class of firms loyal to the country that were engaged in in, in commercial and and industry building, really in the economic, building economic foundations of the nation as companies, reinvesting capital, employing lots of people, training workers, providing for their welfare, paying taxes, not offshoring at all. 
And in India, you have this industrial elite, right? 10, 15, 20 families that run entire cities, that have massive domestic supply chains. And they have decided, particularly in the last few years, instead of offshoring their excess wealth to reinvest it and to put it in technology, to put it in new cities and in new industries and economic diversification, gas, telecoms, tech, you name it, right? They're doing it all. And that's why you're starting to see the growth. So the fact that they're ridiculously wealthy is besides the point. It's what do they do with that marginal capital and profit, even if they weren't excessively built? It's what they do with billions 10 through 20, not what they do with billions 20 through 50 or 60. So I guess that's the, that's the key kind of distinguishing factor is that one of the complaints that I think legitimately the anti-corruption crowd in a, in a country like Pakistan has is all this wealth is not just that the wealth is ill-gotten, but that it's all being held abroad. Right. And it's not really active capital. Yeah. It's just sitting in like gold lockboxes. Look, the last boxes. 25 years of the world economy and capital flows in terms of emerging markets, a lot of it is so-called ill-begotten gains, right? Yeah. You have the money that slushed around the Arab world that was no longer welcome in Western banks after 9-11, for example. Sure. That helped to fuel the growth of, uh, you know, uh, of countries from, from uh, you know, Morocco all the way through Egypt and elsewhere. And that actually helped simulate the Arab Spring because it created more inequality and so forth, right? So we have to look at this in terms of, in terms of flows. And um, once, you know, whether the money is ill-begotten or legitimate, the question is, it's a, it's a competition for investment, right? Are we getting that money and recycling it, you might say laundering it, but into something legitimate? Sure. Let's face it, you know, in Pakistan, a lot of construction activity, where did the money come from? It's like, well, at least wherever it came from, did it create thousands of jobs to build a useful real estate project or something like that? If so, good. You've just laundered it in a good way. Like I said, good corruption, bad corruption. So the epicenter of, of what's fueling the new Asia uh, or the Asian future, it, especially if I connect it to your previous work, uh, it seems like cities are, are, the, are the foundational building block upon which that all of this growth uh, can be and should be constructed. I think the first critique that uh, somebody like me has to deal with is what about the rural poor? How do you, how, uh, what has happened to the rural poor in this new Asia? Have they all just moved to the cities? Well, no, of course not. I mean, urbanization is a rapid and voluntary, largely voluntary phenomenon all over the world, particularly in Asia, you know, with billions of people in this region. We're talking about five billion people are the subject of this book, right? And uh, there is an organic urbanization process. The scale of cities in Asia can be four to five times greater than the largest cities of the West, like a London or New York, right? So you're going to have to focus on the cities because that is where the demographic center is. But urbanization rates vary. You still have a large rural poor in India, but you also have a large amount of investment in the connectivity for those poor to connect to second-tier cities, towns, whatever the case may be. You have efforts in China, which has gone a long way towards expanding the uh, availability and the presence of local health clinics, you know, sort of outward, so that basic medical care and facilities are provided to people even if they have not moved to mega cities, as the case may be. It's not either or. One of the things that I've kind of focused on for a long time is you know, this idea of the measurement of connectivity, right? The recognition that cities have to appreciate that their food, their fuel, their water, you know, all comes from countryside hinterlands, from far, far away, from the ends of the earth, really, 
the metabolism of a city is truly global to some degree, right? And the people in the countryside, the Brexit voters, let's say, right, have to appreciate that, you know, where, where would they be selling their goods? Where would their capital be coming from? Where are they getting their loans from, if not from people in cities, institutions in cities? There's a coexistence, there's a, there's a sort of uh, syncretism, you know, that is not appreciated. So let's not make this an either-or kind of thing. I strongly believe that if cities are taking care of themselves in the sense that, you know, public services are being delivered, there's a large amount of investment, there's entrepreneurs and business people sort of going about their way, mayors are doing a good job, that doesn't mean that governments have succeeded. Their job is to be taking that tax revenue and their resources and extending those benefits to the rest of the country. So at no point does my focus on cities mean that we, that we should be ignoring the non-city right, so to speak, sure. right? This is governance is about providing welfare to people. And that's just as important now as in the past because we're not gonna move to 100% urbanized world. What's happening right now is that some cities have gotten so big and so crowded and so expensive that people are leaving. They're saying, let's move on to tier two cities, tier three cities, let's just move back to the countryside. Let's use whatever digital connectivity we have to have a lower cost life further away. It's actually happening in China. It's happening in parts of India as well. Things are evolving very quickly in that area. We have to focus on the full population, right? And one of the things that I point out through some of the, the mapping that I do is that, you know, obviously cities are among the most unequal places in the world. One of the drivers of the massive domestic income inequality we have today is urbanization. The one and we celebrate urbanization, people move to cities, they get access to services, you know, uh, markets, public services, but their incremental wealth grows so fast that they've left the rest behind. So this inequality that we have today is actually the result of a good thing, which is more people getting access to, to wages and supply chains and so forth in, in cities. So, you know, we have a lot more to do both within cities and outside of cities. Being two South Asian men, I mean, one of the aspects that I think we have a kind of moral and I think intellectual responsibility to is to also think about women. Um, and it seems to me that one of, the, one of the great benefits of the massive urbanization of our part of the world, the South Asian sort of part of the world, is it actually maybe bridges the distance between opportunity and women. Um, is that something that, you know, is, it seems to me there's a lot more women that you see just on the right. subway, uh, in offices, just economically engaged. That doesn't mean rural women aren't engaged, but I think the opportunity uh, especially to connect with higher paying right. and, and sort of more social mobility is much greater in cities for right. women than it is for, for women in, in, oh, for in sure. towns and villages. Yeah. I mean, worldwide urbanization is one of the drivers of the declining fertility rate. If you remember 15, 20 years ago, we had global demographic forecasts predicting a world population of 15 billion people. Now I don't think that we're going to make it to 10 billion people. And that has a lot to do with urbanization and the empowerment of women as they move to cities, smaller family sizes, women working and so forth. Asia is such a heterogeneous kind of space that you can't universalize, generalize about women's rights. You know, there are pockets of West Asia, the Arab world, even South Asia, of course, where women are terribly suppressed despite the heights that they have achieved in politics, for example. Whereas in East Asia, there is a very significantly advanced state of, you know, sort of women's liberation. There are going to be cases, um, you know, that we hear about where women are unfairly treated in the workplace. They're, you know, may earn 80 to 90 percent or something like that of what men do. But if you look at Southeast 
Southeast Asia, even in developing Asia, meaning in Southeast Asia, you have a massive swell of women's empowerment, very high rates of workforce participation and education among Southeast Asian women. And they're leading the way, I think, for the reason. Absolutely. But isn't it also true that, I mean, a lot of conservative uh, analysis of, of, of this massive uh, equalization of opportunity, or not equalization, but certainly a slight leveling of the playing field that economic growth and particularly urbanization offers to women. It also then comes with, uh, as you said, I mean, it's interesting how you responded because the first thing you talked about was the fertility rate. Uh, I mean, I could name sort of, you know, literally every single conservative on the planet thinking, well, that's exactly why we don't want it because actually a woman, no, not so much a woman's rightful place is in the home, but but rather that the disintegration of kind of the, the ideal nuclear family and that structure uh, the sort of the corrosion of the institution of marriage uh, and, and fidelity, given you know the sort of very high rates of just cross gender interaction, and this isn't just. I mean, obviously, the, again, the vantage point for me is from a conservative Muslim standpoint, but these are conversations that are taking place in the in the neoconservative wing of the American and a substantial wing of the American political discourse. How 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 is this dealt with in in kind of the countries that are a little bit further ahead of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, where you know they've had that first wave of, of massive economic growth. Uh, what has been the political reaction? What are the negative political forces that are keeping the future from being Asian in those ASEAN countries, for example? Look, social inequity is, is still terrible, right, in many uh, Asian countries. It's not just the urban-rural divide. It's also the fact that there is racism, right? There's such a you know, significant uh, ethnic diversity in so many Asian countries, and there's uh, inequities built in, really, into the social structure. Caste system in India, for example, and obviously racism in, again, the ethnically diverse countries, whether it's Thailand, Malaysia, and, and so forth. So that, that's a big factor, right? So in the same way that you have a gender divide, you have ethnic divides, and you have ethnic tensions, places like Myanmar that have erupted uh, for this region, uh, for, for this reason. So there's all of those kinds of inequalities, you know, and, and social inequities and prejudices that Asia has. And I think that one of the key factors holding Asia back, again, despite its enormous progress, right, in recent decades, is most certainly that. There's the self-inflicted wounds of politics. You know, it's not due to outside intervention that Thailand is always recycling through regimes. You know, one year it's a junta, the next year it's a kleptocratic, you know, chi ethnic Chinese family and so forth. Um, you know, the, the corruption in Vietnam and so forth. No one has forced them to be this way from the outside, right? But the, I, look, I try to put a positive spin on it in this book. I say, you know, unlike the Arab world, where you have externally inflicted wounds and you have outright, you know, international and, and civil wars raging at the moment, in the better part of Asia, you know, sort of South Asia and East, it's mostly self-inflicted wounds that we're dealing with. And that means that we can learn through these episodes and, and overcome them. And, and so I try to kind of um, look at it as a sign of progress. And again, even the places, one of the key things I do in this book is distinguish between democracy and governance, right? Which in political science is hardly a new innovation, but it's not mentally kind of widespread enough to say, you know what, even in the countries where we are denouncing their leaders as being kind of chauvinistic, populist, strongmen, places like, you know, the Philippines, for example, you have remarkable improvements 
in yeah. governance, yeah. right? Public service. And I have this, this, this table, you'd really have to see it to believe it. I mean, you've got countries that are declining in the uh, technical measurement of the quality of their democracy, yeah. where the delivery of the government, the capacity of the state, which you have, you have devoted your career to, literally, is improving substantially. And I want people to look at both sides of that story. I mean, obviously, the immediate sort of charge that you then have to deal with is that, you know, in a sense, you're endorsing a corrosion of, you know, democratic ideals in, in favor of, uh, you know, some quick wins on service delivery. And, of course, there's a whole Amartya Sen sort of take on that, which, which I'm not necessarily completely bought into. I think I'm, I'm more partial to being open-minded about it, although not, not entirely convinced one way or the other, because I actually don't think there's a formula. I think that, you know, there's context is king. Did you have a chance to deal with the Karak countries and, and kind of, I mean, I think of Azerbaijan because of its massive natural resource advantage, but also think of the huge, uh, highly educated populations in, in Tajikistan, in Uzbekistan, yeah, yeah. Turkmenistan, yeah. China's proximity to Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. What are the stands, yeah. I had excluding Afghanistan and Pakistan, yeah. what are the stands yeah. doing? In, in, where do they fit in with the, with the future you know, of Asia? That's the region that's kind of obsessed to me the most. In this book, I actually have a chance to reflect on 20 years of my backpacking in those countries. You know, the, the stand countries yeah. and the Caucasus countries have been my favorite places to travel for a couple of decades now. And so they have progressed remarkably. You have finally uh, had most of those countries change their regime from their Soviet era leadership, except for Kazakhstan. But Kazakhstan was fresh out of the gates in a way as the most progressive and with the That's oil right. wealth that it has and reforming. It will go through a political transition, but what I see in that country, as with others going as far west as, um, as on the other side of the Caspian Sea to Azerbaijan, and this links to the previous issue, I'm seeing a technocratic elite or caste of uh, knowledgeable you know, administrators who are Western educated, who have come back to their countries because they see the high level of growth. And the regimes, even if they are still the Soviet era, even if they're still very corrupt countries, are allowing those people to manage the state and to manage it well. Uzbekistan, which is really critical, it has a larger population than all of its you know, neighbors, uh, com all of its former Soviet neighbors combined, now has had a as a transition in leadership and a, has a remarkable economic opening and is attracting a lot of fresh investment and so forth. So I'm quite positive, and I think that those will be the places where, as Europe connects to Asia through the Belt and Road Initiative, they're going to be among the primary beneficiaries because they are truly the crossroads of Eurasia, and their governments are willing to reform. Their populations are very young, just like we see here in South Asia. So I think I'm quite optimistic about those countries. They have natural resource wealth as well. But uh, you've been talking about sort of, you know, connectivity and particularly the Belt and Road Initiative, not necessarily in that language, but I know you've been working on the new Silk Road and the Silk Road and all of these ideas of how principally China, but really just as a principle, all these countries are building the, the foundations of essentially talking to each other, trading with each other, and eventually sort of being, being bound to each other from an economic standpoint. How excited or scared are you of the future? Because in, from, again, from the vantage point that, that I'm looking at the world, the threats to these connectivities and, and these connections are foundationally, I think, much more profound than, than the 
visible opportunity because we can't feel it. We're, it's just a promise of what trade could bring. But, but the enemies of that progress, they can explode a bomb as they did in Kabul uh, you know, a few days ago, uh, and they can put a stop to any building momentum towards that connectivity. Obviously, you're an optimist. Uh, you always have been. But how, how do, what would you say to leaders of these countries in terms of how they should be dealing with these threats? Is the way that you know, countries like Pakistan have dealt with them the right way? Uh, is there a better way to deal with these threats? How do you, how do you get taken seriously beyond sort of the, the, the evidence that you have when it comes to this kind of these lethal threats to this connectivity? When you look, you know, it actually comes back in many ways to cities. One of the things I've argued is that city building is the best kind of state building, right? So the more the world moves into cities and the more you have younger populations moving into cities, the more, the more you have a change in mindsets, right? People embrace more liberal social customs and norms. They're much more bought into globalization and connectivity and the benefits that it brings. You build that domestic constituency that opposes the forces that want to take it apart for their own narrow agendas and interests, whether it is, you know, sort of a political uh, radicalism or whatever the case may be. So I think that there is an organic process underway where, you know, the forces of connectivity are clearly winning out. Globalization and its benefits are winning out. Those benefits are spreading in many countries as the cost of technology comes down. So rather than having to intervene in Afghanistan to spread, you know, this message, right, it, the Afghan people themselves want to defend the gains that they've had. And we see that actually not just in Central Asia. That's actually quite common now around the world. So again, fully irreversible, natural mega trends like urbanization, like digital connectivity and infrastructure advancement. Those are the, the, the bedrocks, the platforms on which the new mentality is almost built. And I see more people getting on that train than getting on the train heading in the opposite direction. So that is why you could say I'm an inadvertent optimist, right? I'm analytically an optimist, not because I'm necessarily emotionally predisposed towards that view. That is actually what is empirically happening. Otherwise, I wouldn't defend that view. Sure. Look, Parag, uh, you know that I'm actually not just empirically, but also from, from a kind of... Uh, belief standpoint. I, I really think that, you know, we always, uh, the world always does and, and should move towards uh, togetherness and, uh, and better out opportunities and outcomes for everyone. And I really think that uh, you have been one of my Sherpas in this, in this world. And uh, so thank you, for, thank you. For, for helping steward my journey in, in terms of understanding how the world is connected. I can't recommend uh, your previous books enough, and I'm really looking forward to reading uh, The Future is Asian. Thanks so much for joining us on Tabad Lab Live. Thank you. Thank you.